We touched in chapter 8 on verses 28 through 30. And before we got through verse 29, I realized there's just no way we were going to be able to cover this whole material. So I decided to go ahead and let us hit it this day. And this is where our review begins. So, Verse 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Here are some alternative translations of that. Uh, the message. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. What? Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> Interesting. As long as you love him. That's the message. Say that again. Read the I want to read it again. I'm going to read it. I thought that would. I wanted to start with this one because I thought it would catch you. I think that presupposition. That... That's why. Of course, it's it's referring back to verse 27 and before. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Hmm. Yeah. Hold judgment for a little bit and let's read a few others. Here's the English Standard Version. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Here's the Holman translation. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. The New Living Translation. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Here's today's English version. We know that in all things, God works for good with those who love him. Those whom he has called according to his purpose. Now that right there is a little difference. God works for good with those with those who love him, those whom he has called according to his purpose. Here's the Amplified Bible. And we are assured and know that God being a partner in their labor, all things work together and are fitting into a plan for good and to and for those who love God and are called according to his design and purpose. That's just fascinating. Notice what they did. And we are assured and know that God being a partner in their labor, all things work together and are fitting into a plan for good to and for those who love God and are called according to his design and purpose. Now, the Amplified Bible is always highly interpretive. It is more or less a commentary, not a paraphrase, um, on, on the text. That God being a partner in their labor is rooted in 
the, the translation of the verb in function here, work together. It's interpretive of that. Let's read the last translation that I printed out from the New Jerusalem Bible. We are well aware that God works with those who love him, those who have been called in accordance with his purpose and turns everything to their good. Hmm. What do you all think? It sounds like if you're in God, you're of God, you praise God, you're with God, the Spirit's in you, and you've got no choice. You're going to be good. That's what it really sounds like. All those translations are coming back with a presupposition. If you love God. That's, that's a conditional. Absolutely. But it's assumed to be true. Now. Did you read the Craig uh, Neal version? <laughs> I haven't read it yet because I don't want to determine what the result will be. I like how the message begins. That's why we can be so sure. That points out that this paragraph isn't divorced from the rest of the chapter preceding it. So unfortunately, <laughs> we are having to back up just a tiny bit. Notice what he says in the preceding paragraph. Yeah. The preceding paragraph. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with us with sighs too deep for words, and God who searches the heart. And here's the point. God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Now, I don't like the rest of that. Mm -hmm. I don't like the rest of it, but I like the first bit. That's why we can be so sure. That's why we can be so sure. And it is interesting, too, that it, it links to uh, the verse that has the Spirit talking to God rather than us talking to God. Correct. It's God speaking through us to God. The Holy Spirit living in us residing in us, empowering us, enabling us in our praying, even when we do not know how to pray, relating us to God in a way that we ourselves, by our own strength, by our own understanding, by our own ability, can't do. And that occurs within the context of suffering, in the context of being transformed, in the context of this creation moaning with labor pains, waiting for the culmination and completion of our transformation and the coming of the full kingdom of God and the presence of God here and our participation in that transformation. Where are you getting that why thing again? This, hmm? You said the part you like the best and that is why? That's Where are you getting why. That uh, because it connects, <coughs> it connects the priest, the, the, this verse yeah. to the preceding verses. But where's it coming? It doesn't. The paragraph doesn't sit out there on its own, doing nothing. Yeah, that's why you like that's why. But I don't have that's why, and I have what heard about that's the, why. the original. I mean, what, what that's what I'm wondering. What is? How does the original why read? Is that's why coming from. 
original reads, uh, white, we, and, and we know that de, adumen de hate tois agaposen. We know and. The and has to go before the verb. Yeah. And we know. It's the and, the conjunction. Yeah, and. and it could be a conjunction, but. And some translators, interpreters, have taken it as. But, in contrast to what precedes it, i.e., amidst the yeah. sufferings. Yeah. yeah, I have one. That, that you have one? Translations of the, who is, who is this it? This is the 26. Uh, I'm not sure what the abbreviation means. What's the abbreviation? TCNT. The 20th century. The 20th century New Testament. And it reads, but we do know that God calls So it takes it in contrasting format that even a with all of this suffering and all that's going on and the fact that we don't know how to pray, God nevertheless could translate. Which if you look at it as looking at it as a contrast to what we see around us. Yes. This still happens. It, it, it's it's a, you, can, it, you can see how it fits very nicely. It is in a possible interpretive approach. There needs to be a conjunction here. All right. That's the point. The de demands it. In Greek, most translations that I'm looking at here, in many cases, do not include it. They simply start out with "We know that." Wow. This one says, "We know further." We know further is a good way to do it. This has got the end. We know further. In other words, that is conjunctive and not contrasting. It's a positive conjunctive. It says, "We know and we know that all mm-hmm. things." It is inclusive of flowing from. The fact that the Holy Spirit living within us prays to God through us. That we go through this period of suffering with the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We even amidst the suffering. That's important. Even amidst the suffering, the the conflict, our own struggles against inner sin as well as out exterior persecution. If we even amidst all of that. We know that God is still with us. And in some way that we're going to look at next, working good. Now you brought up the conditional. Yes. The conditional. Read it in your translation, verse 28. And and we know that in the all... The NIV starts with and. Aren't you happy? Yes, <laughs> I, I am. You'd like so this one. We got some ands. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's almost a double. Of those who love him. For the good of those who are called. Who called. Who who have been called according to his purpose. Who have been called according to his purpose. purpose. That's a double conditional. Well, one leads to the other. Being called leads to loving God. You know, so I put it backwards. Hmm. All right. Now, how do we understand this? Because, you know, I can. Uh, Paul himself would readily admit, in fact, he does in many places, readily admit that there are lots of bad things that happen. 
to people who follow God. It's the nature of persecution. Persecution isn't necessarily good. It's more of that suffering and pain. Suffering and pain. We had somebody say last week that uh, and, and good things happen to bad people sometimes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it was catching. That was an interesting backwards articulation. <laughs> Freudian well, slip. How, how do we understand this statement? Let's take a look at um, just a second here. Um, let's skip all things and go to the word good. What's good? What, do we, what does the apostle mean by good? I thought he meant what God wants for you. What God wants for you. And his people. And can you put some definition to that? I'd be afraid to, but I would think that he, he wants us to give, it, give up uh, everything for him, believe in him, have faith in him. That's the good. The good is the truth of God. To grow in grace, to grow in faith, to grow in all that that includes. This um, translation Your says that which conforms us to the likeness of his son. Conforms us to the likeness of his son, i.e. the completion of that which is talked about in the preceding verses about the coming of the kingdom and the establishment of that kingdom within and through us. We being co-agents in its establishment. Hmm. Prosperity preachers would say, well, that's, uh, that's uh, houses and cars and money. Good. That's, that's the Western material interpretation. Yes. That's all that I hope that's not some of the glory you were talking about that the that's suffering pales before, you understand. No, because be Paul never defines it as uh, okay. What pales this is the glory of God. And this is a taste of that glory. The good is the glory of God. Uh-huh. And what is good, um, what's happening, we may not look at as good. Exactly. At the moment. At the moment. Like if you look at the original apostles and their ministry, how they were in Jerusalem. And the process, the persecution came about. They probably didn't think that was very good, but in the, we can look back at history now and see if it wasn't. But for that part of persecution, they would have never left and spread and gone out of And the gospel message that they were preaching may have just become a splinter of Judaism and sure. never reached what God intended it. So. There's people who lived and died and never saw the actual good that resulted from the persecution that happened mm-hmm. to them. So it's not necessarily the immediate experience thereof that's the good. Certainly not in the material things of this world. Paul speaks about suffering producing mm-hmm. virtue, faith, uh, faith tried in the fire. Amidst the opposition and the suffering. Within the struggle of doubt, faith can be strengthened, built up, empowered by questioning. That's a good, even though the process may not feel very good. That's a good. 
it, it doesn't feel very good to go to the gym and work out, but no pain, no gain. All right? That kind of includes the whole concept there. So this goes against that ancient saying, character is exposed, not built. <laughs> Uncovered. Yes, yes, sir. We so know. We read this as meaning that as we, and we know that in all things God works for the good as God works to make us more Christ-like. That is, is that definitely, definitely well, that's certainly you, that, that is definitely one strong interpretation. Well, and, and in fact, looking at the next verse, verse 29, King James uses the phrase, to be conformed to the image of his son. Yeah, exactly. But then, unfortunately, they screw that up with that predestined thing. Remi- that now, wait a second, wait a second. Remember, just as you do not divorce the verse from the preceding paragraph, you should never divorce the verse from the subsequent sentence in the same paragraph. So to oh, actually okay. read on to verse 29 is helpful in the extreme. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Some would say that to be conformed to the image of his son, is, which is what you were quoting, is precisely what the good is. Other thoughts? on what is, for many, an extremely puzzling and troubling verse in Scripture. One of the things that comes to mind with this verse is always the idea of all things work together for good versus God enters into all things to work his good. The difference being God's causing whatever you're going through to work the good versus you may have gotten yourself into that mess and even though you got yourself into that mess God can enter into that to work his good or you didn't do anything at all it just happened upon you not by God putting it on you but Mm -hmm. because we live in a world dominated by Satan and bad things happen to good people the New Living Translation falls into the pitfall falls into the trap And we know that God causes everything. Sometimes the New Living Translation does a beautiful job of interpreting or applying a passage. And then sometimes it's sometimes better than the Old Living. Oftentimes better than the Old Living. Yes, definitely. But sometimes it stumbles. And that's an example of it stumbling. We know that God causes. It's interesting because this Bible says that as well, which is supposed to be more of a literal translation of the Greek. This one says, God causeth all things to work together for good. How does, now, it doesn't say he causes the bad thing that's happening, but how does yeah. the Greek, when you go back to the original Greek? The NAS does the same thing. It says, we know that God causes all things. Um, it does, I don't, I don't read it as, as, saying that God causes and we know that God works together that 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 those who love God we know that for those who love God all uh, um, working together for good God does so it could leave open the interpretation that God would enter into your life to work 
his good in whatever circumstances happen to go on. The word order is what's giving me trouble here because it is backwards from the normal indication in Greek even. But yeah, you're right. And we know that for those who love God into everything, working with the good God does. That is strange. It's very awkward. When you go back to that one, which we had to go back to, 27, though, you've got him saying that he knows the mind of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. The Spirit, and that's capital. That's Holy Spirit. Right. Intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you get away from a causative factor there. God is a causative factor, but of what? Of the bad experience and the circumstance? Or of how it is then applied in our lives. In Mark Arthur's note, he doesn't say that he causes it. He says uh, God orchestrates all events. Well, that's worse. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I would disagree with MacArthur at that point. Say God orchestrates, well, like God is the composer of all. That's where it's rooted in the concept of God as the composer. That's a too strong of Calvinistic understanding for my taste. I still prefer the concept of, yes, there, God is a causative factor here, but not so much of the event, but as of how that event then, inter- right. how our lives right. interact with that event, yeah, hence like the that. working together with idea. The Greek word here for work together is soon erge, ergon, erg, work energy and soon with together with literally so working together with or within uh, within the context of within is probably a better so within all things within all things that happen literally God does work for good would it be fair to say that God yeah. uses all things in our in the lives of those who love him for their good? If we had experienced total perfection or total sanctification, that would be an absolute statement of truth. To the extent that we fail to conform to the image of the Son of God, the subsequent verse, sometimes we can fail to respond in faith and not receive that blessing that God wishes to give us in the experience even of the bad. Uh, I would, my, in my utilization of this verse here tends to orbit around concepts of means of grace because I'm a sacramentarian. God can use any, and I've said that in my book, God can use anything as a means of grace, even bad things. I was appointed to First United Methodist Church of Hell. where I had a KKK member who was the son of Satan and he was married to the daughter of Satan and and they they were causing hell in my life and yet God used that whole event in some respects to get me out of there and into the church that I needed to be in where I could do a whole lot of good which was the church before Singleville. 
I kind of like the the scepter of the shotgun of your father. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. That's what comes to mind. That is a Thank good, you, God. That is a good. That is good. It's a, it's a symbol. God used my pulmonary embolism. <laughs> my God did not cause my pulmonary embolism. My own stupidity did. But God, nevertheless, used that circumstance and that experience to both educate me and mature me in certain things as well as to set me in a place so that six months later I could be appointed to Sigoville mm -hmm. and be with them in ministry for many years and that was definitely a positive I didn't enjoy going through it but God and there were other things that God did through that 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 toughened me, that grew me spiritually, that grew me morally, that grew me in my in my life with Christ, and pushed me out of some of my comfort zones, which I didn't want to leave. But but God knew that I had to be pushed out of those comfort zones before I would then grow. And so God used that bad event i.e. moved into and worked within that bad event took advantage of that bad event to work good in my life well, what happened to that church though did the bishop come in and fix it oh yeah he did fix it uh, wrote every single I told the story in church yeah, it may not have been yeah, that yeah, Sunday but the bishop uh, the, uh, they they did an analysis of the congregation the bishop came in they wrote out of the membership all the KKK members. There were still problems going on, so they literally closed the church and reopened it. And they got rid of all the problem people that way. They went over to the Church of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> Some may have gone over there too, but I know they I know that the head ringleaders, uh, members of the KKK, went over. What happened was I had received an African American couple in the membership. At, at Blue Ridge United Methodist Church, First Church Hell, and 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 they they did not like it. Let's put it that way. And so the guys with sheets came to get me. Mm. It wasn't fun. Mm -hmm. It was not fun. That was in the nineties, wasn't it? Nineteen ninety six. Wow, amazing. Can you believe that? Yeah. Nineteen ninety six in Collin, North Collin, Collin County. Wow. So. Do you think you could take? You think you could take this if it was printed on a trim, say a, a, something plastic or something, and put that over every situation? I've said that essentially, with eyes of faith and an open heart, willing to look for God's working. Yes, even in absolute disasters. Now, but the conditions are relevant here in that state. That's I'm coming to that in just a moment. That's what I, that, actually, those are the conditions that I articulated. With eyes of faith, with a heart open to God's grace, that is reflective of who are called according to his purpose, who love God. Those are the conditionals. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you are wanting God's will to come about, uh -huh. you could apply that to every, every situation. Because so you, long as. So long as my eyes are, I'm willing to exercise faith and keep my spiritual eyes open to God's grace in pain. Well, my dad's death. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm not very happy about that. I was angry at God and I yelled at God and I wanted my dad back. Damn it. I want dad back. Now, 
And I've yelled that is in recent history, within the last month. And yet, I have seen God work some very important literal miracles in my mother's life in the in the years since two years now since dad died. Things that would not have happened until dad was either relieved of the pain and anguish and the suffering of what he was going through or died. And that's one and the same thing, by the way. And that was my same exact experience since our dad's died within a couple months. Ago. Same exact. Experience. Yeah, we had we, we both shared a parent and father's death. And, and the mother's yeah, the miracle is amazing. That's an example. I, I, I'm not happy about I never it. Never would have believed it. I'd rather have dad back, but I can look with eyes of faith and a heart heart open to grace, and I can see within that terrible experience of my dad's death, God moving. God moving in my brother's life. My brother, a week ago, Chuck, Mm -hmm. asked me for a Bible. Then that, my friends, is a miracle. I thought he was going to say he gave up drinking. That's coming. Uh, He asked me for a Bible. Because he couldn't find his. And I think the only Bible he owns is the Bible he got years and years and years ago at church and I you know I absolutely which one (laughs) you haven't had an extra Bible Um, absolutely I got him one Um, that's an that that is and, and I can trace that request through a chain of events that began with dad's death before dad's death but dad's death was an important step in the chain God moved into that experience and has been is now and will continue to work good in the midst of it for those who are called according to his purpose, who love God. Now some may not be called, and those situations might be heartbreaking because it might be someone you love who isn't responding to God's word and has no desire to be to love God. This is not an open-ended promise. Yeah, so I mean, I could see how that this idea of all things work together for good or God enters into all things to work his good. You can look at a situation in your life and say, well, wait a second, I don't see any good there. Maybe the people involved don't love God, or maybe they do, but you don't you don't see it yet, or maybe it won't happen. When you I would give it multiple stages. Because it may be an ultimate truth in a particular circumstance that the conditions aren't met. But there may be other circumstances where the conditions aren't met yet. In which case, God will eventually end up working good. When you take it back to the beginning, it gets worse and worse. Lately. Now we're at 26. But when I take it back <laughs> to 26, the very beginning, you said take, take the sentence from the paragraph, uh-huh. understand the whole paragraph. In, this, in our book, in NIV, it says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Yes. 
And if I take that, the, the Spirit helping us in our weakness. Yes, exactly. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. God works together in our difficult times with us. So even amidst the struggle, I'll put it into Paul's circumstances, the struggle against sin in his own life and his cry out, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of his death, his sinful body that he saw doing things that he didn't want to do. And he spiritually, he knew he wasn't supposed to do, but he did them anyway. In the midst of that struggle, in his weakness, he could know all things. He could even, he had the audacity to write. <laughs> and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Because because he had faith that this was this conditions are true for him. And hence he could experience that truth. And in fact he had an example of that truth. The thorn in the flesh. Now there's lots of debate as to what the thorn of the flesh is. What is Paul's thorn in the flesh? He tells us it's a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. To keep him from being too elated about the glories of the gospel and what he had been called as an apostle to do. I believe the thorn in the flesh was quite literally a demon of Satan. Messenger of Satan. Angel of Satan. Literally. We call those things demons. And personified by people who would, especially the Jewish Christians who opposed him, who would come to him and say... You know, or go to his people who he had converted and say, you can't trust Paul. He used to be a persecutor of the church. He's not telling you everything. Listen to us. We taught him everything he knows. Listen to us. Guys get circumcised. Women cook kosher. I mean, uh, and opposed him in his churches. And he viewed them, and he calls them messengers of Satan, proclaimers of another gospel, which is not another gospel. He, 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 he was clear in identifying who those messengers of Satan were. And then he talks about it at them as a thorn in his flesh, constantly irritating him, making his life painful. And in the midst of that, he took the desire that he would be relieved of these jackasses to God and God said my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness so God was willing to work through <clears throat> the experience and the circumstance of the opposition he was receiving gave him the assurance of knowing that God's grace was sufficient for him did not relieve him of the opposition, not at all, but utilized the circumstance for not only Paul's own good in the end, got into Rome for free, but for our good 2,000 years later. So there's an example from Paul's own hand in the Corinthian correspondences, which were occurring not long before he wrote this. This concept 
is not a general all-purpose promise. It's, it's specific to those who meet the condition at the end of the sentence, of the, at the end of verse 28. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And it's not God causing these events. It's God moving in and through them. Oftentimes, despite of them. Yeah. It's really about your attitude toward the events. I mean, it is an overlay. And you choose to put the overlay on the events. And you choose to look for and hope for. Underlined hope. You know. Underlined hope and use it in the biblical sense. And you're exactly right. You're exactly right, because the hope is reflective of the assurance that God is going to be with you in and through it, no matter what. And it's not wishy-washy hope, it's assurance. It's a sure hope. And that God can use that event to make you more Christ-like. I mean, that is your hope, that even in this event or these circumstances, yeah. if I look for it, God can bring about a change in me or a change that perfects me more. Yes. Who wouldn't want that? Mm. Only the RSV reads, which is pretty simple. But the RSV? Yeah. Because we know that in, in everything, God works for good with those who love him in our call. Which I like that translation. Repeat it, please. We know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him in our call. You know, it's not I have my arguments with the RSV in many places. I didn't like the era in which it was translated was too governed by certain aspects of, of early 20th century liberalism. But that is a fabulous translation. Because the promise, I could you read, read that, and the promise that I get is, in everything, so in all the circumstances, I have a promise that says God is working with me. If I'm claiming that I love him, and I do, and, I, and I'm called, and, and my brethren are around me that... Or in the same state, that that's a, that's a great promise. You know, that God is working; He's in the midst. Now, it takes a great deal of faith to see, interpret, comprehend, and accept and claim for yourself where God is doing that good when everything's going to crap around you. And that was my next statement. And then, when you read it that way, um, God is so. The promise is God's working His good. It doesn't say to me as an individual. Not God necessarily. Is, God is working his good in the midst. Maybe it's the church. Maybe not me as an individual, but he's working his good for the body of Christ. I will well, say, maybe my pain and suffering could be somebody else's blessing. I would say that God utilized Paul, and God worked good for Paul too. But more importantly, God worked good for everybody who has followed since, who have bothered to read Paul. Much more good for them. Mm -hmm. But for Paul too. In multi at multiple levels. Um, Wouldn't you say it would be very difficult in our lifetime now because we think and are bombarded with what is good is is so opposite of what God's definition of good is. So our concept of good is so distorted. To Western have, materialistic concept of good yeah. is so perverted that it fails to come close to God's definition of good for us. Green is good. But I want to take it a step I mean that's a, that is absolutely I want to take it a step from that. Yeah, a question. Yes. <clears throat> if God is in every situation 
and we can't see who loves God in that situation, then that's, that silences us from ever having any kind of criticism about anything. Because we're hip deep in mysticism and it just silences you automatically. It just gives a free ticket to the church to say, God was in that, God was in that, God, no criticism at all. Identify the, the criticism comes with identification of the good. Uh, he was pretty critical of the church, first church of hell. Yeah. And the Satan, he talked about the Satan, Satan the, yeah. and the son of Satan and his wife. And in fact enabled my criticism yeah. of what was going on I think that's pretty there. critical. And the eventual destruction, at least in, in at that particular church, of that, use a weirdly mixed term, that coven of KKK. <laughs> That's a very good term. That's just one situation. We're talking yeah. about any kind of But I'm using that as an illustration. Well, Paul and the demons of the flesh. There, so what, I understand what you're saying, but so long as one is willing to exercise due discernment within the context of what is good. I think it would help us identify the bad, the the what needs to be criticized criticized in the. Eventually, we actually participate. You notice this is God works together for good. It's there is a cooperative working in there, not just God. But then God's instruments, God's people, God's hands and feet, the body of Christ, the church, is called to participate in the working of good for others. We become means of grace for them. Working for good for others. It, it becomes an opportunity for us when we see a bad experience occurring, a bad event occurring, to become the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears of Jesus to be truly the body of Christ, moving to work good, and prayerfully, faithfully, moving to work good. And doesn't that, many illustrations in the New Testament itself show that people of God and people purporting to do God's will and God's work on behalf of God are in fact doing the absolute honest, I mean opposite of it. Yeah. Look at Peter, for example, when God, Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. When he was saying how bad it is for Jesus to go to the cross. I mean, Peter, get behind me, Satan, he calls him. And then in Galatians, you've got um, Paul himself talking about people who, I'm sure in their own cluster of people, of group, thought that they were doing God's will. And even we are called to be discerners and not just blindly follow, but discern if that group of people are purporting something that it goes against what my understanding of what God's will is, then maybe that's not the group I should be in. I should go and I should be around another group. So not everybody who says that they are you know, doing God's will certainly are in fact doing God's will. Yeah. Do you feel in the minority? No, I say, can, okay, can you take any situation and say, definitely, okay, God is not in that. No, this leads it the other way. Every situation has God in it, and it has uh, some good, and this is what the church says, and this work, we may not be able to see it. If now, 50 years from now, or what, but that's just a, that's just a free ticket to have 
to it kill also, Christians. If the it also says that you're in that situation, and I'm in that situation. Thank you. And and so you're not you're not free to stand apart from it. And oh, and I say something. I don't so have you got to you got if, if you're called, you feel called. And you've got to move in that situation. You know? well, so I'm okay, here's the, oh, that's it. It's all, it's all, all set for me. Where did God? Where was God? Where did God work good in the situation? Okay, let's just pull something out of the hat. Um, Aztec sacrifices of the people whom they captured. How did God work for good in that circumstance? I don't believe God did. Yeah. Because that's not a context. The Holocaust is what came to mind. The event of the good? Holocaust itself was not good. Exactly. God did not cause it. But God nevertheless moved and worked in individual human lives in the, in the context of it. And you know stories of those have been told. God also utilized that process to push an event which some people would identify as being bad, other people would identify as being good, other people would identify as being mixed, that's the establishment of a Jewish homeland. Yeah, that's what I mean. And you can have lots. <laughs> you can have lots of debates as to whether or not it's being executed properly today. But the idea of a Jewish homeland is, in and of itself, a good one. And we still have to work on it. Yeah, you know, we're still. The situation is still there. Right. We can still become. We can still become the the instruments of good. In that become part of how God is going to work good amidst the mess that currently exists. Uh, the condition, which is what Pete articulated, is what, in a sense, limits this. No, not in a sense, absolutely limits it. Not just to every single event that occurs, but every single event that occurs in which these conditions are met. We can't tell those conditions. They may be, they may be where we can't see them. That may be, that may be true. So we have to make an assumption. You have to discern. You have to discern. You have to act in faith. And act in faith. Mm-hmm. And look for God in the situation. Look for where God wants you to enter into it to work good. That may be a factor. That happened to Paul on multiple occasions. It happens to, it, I was uh, the, the thought just came to me, and I. I Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer eventually, after opposing behind the scenes the Nazi government, participated in an attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Now, murder isn't a good thing, but Adolf Hitler is a personification of an Antichrist character. He's evil to the core. And getting rid of him would save millions of innocent lives. Good thing to do, get rid of Adolf Hitler. He attempted it, got caught, eventually died for it. Now, his action has had an impact far beyond the immediacy of the circumstance. Down to today, people know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer almost more because of his attempt and his action to try to stop evil and now have read his theological treatises, some that were written before and some that were written while he was in prison. Because of what he did, that he eventually said, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines anymore, I'm going to take an action. I, I just find that amazing. He ended up, and he got crushed for it. 
That wasn't a good for him personally. But he ended up working a good, even though he failed to assassinate Adolf Hitler, it ended up working a good for a lot of people across history since then. Here's another thought with the Holocaust and what happened with Hitler. You know, Satan knows God's plan. He knows what God wants to do because he, he's been around forever. And if God's purpose, one of them, was to set up a state Israel with the Jews, what better purpose for Satan than to arouse somebody who's going to annihilate all the Jews? Get rid of them before they can do it. Absolutely. And so even against those odds, that God could still enter into this corrupt world with Satan's powers working on those to enable his purpose to be brought forward. I mean, there, to me, is you know a great example Incredible of God example. working... Because he's not, he's not going to manipulate this earth to, uh, to work his good. He wants people to act, and he's got a force against him that's trying to thwart everything he does. That sunerge, that word, keeps coming back, working together with. That's critical. That's going to be true in everything. And in the midst of that horrible thing, you had people of God, people who wanted to work with God, and look at some of the great things that came of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. I do want to finish the paragraph. <laughs> oh, I came to hear about predestination. And that's what's coming next. That'll, that'll be next month. Now, since we, and since we know, I'm going to translate it again. And since we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, and that's those folk who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. I want to finish the paragraph, then we're going back and break it apart. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, just as a structural observation, this is an example of one of those series that Paul does. That just They just come beautifully. And they reflect the fact that this was orally dictated, almost as he might have preached it. But he didn't preach this, he simply dictated it. But it reflects that he communicated orally far more than he ever communicated in written form. Now... Picking up in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. Now, the first word of critical importance here is the word pro-egg-no. It's not an Italian spice. <laughs> pro-egg-no. We get two words in English from this Greek word. We get prognosis, and we get prognosticate, both of which are essentially the same thing. Prognostication produces prognoses, but we usually say that doctors pronounce prognosis, prognoses, prognosis, pro and gnosis. Actually, the G should be included. Gnosis. Gnosis, no here, means 
to know in Greek. The Gnostics, Gnostics were the people who knew. To know is gnosis. Knowledge is gnosis. Pro means before. Hence, to know before. Before knowing. Knowledge ahead of time. So literally, for those whom he knew ahead of time. For those whom God knew for knew ahead of time, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's amazing how many translations don't even have the word no mm-hmm. in this verse. Mm-hmm. The message reads pre-approved, choose, marked. Thank you. All as opposed to no. Here's the message. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He, de- <laughs> he decided... <laughs> that is good. He decided from the very... He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. <laughs> who wrote that? Oh, no, That's no. the message. The message. <laughs> Here's the ESV. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Here's the Holman. For those whom he foreknew. The new living. For God knew his people in advance. That's pretty good. The English version, the today's English version. Those whom God had already chosen, he also set apart. Well, we'll come to that in a second. Amplified Bible. For those whom he foreknew, of whom he was aware and loved beforehand. <laughs> New Jerusalem Bible. He decided beforehand who were the ones destined to be molded into the pattern of his son. Well, this sounds like an answer to a question, but who, who asked the question? Where, where it seems to be totally out of context. <laughs> well, it's within the context of this whole issue. Actually, it's in the context of the whole issue of how do you identify and know those who love God and are called, called according to his purpose. Wasn't that, that Lee's, Lee's question? question? Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Wow. That was <laughs> Lee's question. <laughs> Very good. You were channeling Paul here, Lee. He <laughs> <laughs> did it before with the Trinity, you know? He's on For those whom he knew before, now, foreknew, pregno, can be argued to mean chose. Because there is an idiomatic usage, there are two, there's more than two, idiomatic usages of the word to know. We all know one of them. Idiomatically, to know means to have sexual knowledge of. Mm-hmm. To experience, literally. And that's rooted in the concept of to know intimately down to that very level. That's not the idiomatic meaning here. (laughs) But there's another related idiomatic meaning which goes back to the root concept therein and that is that God's knowledge of you goes to the root concept of God chose you. That is the Calvinist approach. They solve the concept of foreknowledge here. They solve the problem here 
by saying it doesn't literally mean foreknew, i.e. knew what they were going to do, but rather chose them. That's weak. The literal meaning of the word is knew ahead of time. Those whom God knew ahead of time. But it says here that Paul refers to the fact that in eternity past, God knew those who by faith would become his people. Right. So eternity past. Well, that's a weird one because that's a linear concept of time relating to a nonlinear concept of time. So does he know us before what we will do before we were even born or this is reincarnation? Um the problem is that we got the problem, our problem is, is that we see time as a linear process of progressing from the past to the present and to the future. Concepts of eternity lack that progression. And you're trying, the problem is people are trying to assign to God the very concept of knowing, uh, fortune telling, knowing ahead of time what you're going to do, rather than simply knowing you from within eternity, i.e. God knowing the totality of the completion of what you what in your your from your point of view you're going to do. But from God's point of view, you've done. He already knows. It's already happened for God. God has already seen and experienced it. It's completed. You are done. Everything is over with. It's completed. We're experiencing it and processing through it now. But from God's perspective in eternity, it's completed. Just like a book of Moby Dick sitting on your shelf. You can read through it, and as you're reading through it, you're experiencing the events within the book. But you stick it up on your shelf, and it's a completed entity right there. That's eternity, and that's your life. You go into it at any given point, you can experience the linear linear experience and the cause and effect experience that we think of as time and the choices that we make. God looks at it and sees it as done. That's the whole concept of eternity and God being the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So so we're, we're having to struggle with this concept of how can a God who is eternal have a foreknowledge when foreknowledge concepts are human in experience. It's because he's writing to human beings about human beings' perspective. In your context, God foreknows you before you were ever born. Been there, done that. Yeah. Is it too simplistic to say he knows the end of the book because he wrote it? He knows the end of the book, okay, as an author who has written fiction, I can tell you that even though I have written books, I have dis- I have been surprised at what some of my characters do. And people, yeah. authors who write fiction books, establish a character, create a character in their mind, sometimes write it out. They start to write the book. And usually as they're writing the book, those characters do change and evolve and kind of write themselves as they interact with themselves. The author is still in charge, 
But those characters take on a life of their own. And in that sense, you're getting a little bit – the, the, the real-world authors today have a little bit of a taste. Just a snippet, little, little bit of a taste of what it might be like to be God and watching as us human creatures write ourselves. Now, this idea of foreknowledge, I like to kind of translate a little differently. For those whom he knew, notice the tense here, past. For those whom he knew, for those whom he knew, he also predestined. So if he knows you, and he knows you're a person of faith, and he knows that your life has been exemplified by faith in Jesus Christ from a certain point in your life until the day you die. He also predestined you. But take out the pre. For those whom he knew, he also destined. Determined. Decided. To be conformed to the image of his in other words, because God knew you to be a person of faith in your life, which is now in eternity, God has decided to conform you to the image of Christ Jesus. That confirmation period, <laughs> that conforming, occurs within our life here as we are transformed slowly but surely until its very end in which that last vestiges of humanity and sinfulness are dropped and we become perfect as Christ is perfect. But we experience it in the process of sanctification, getting foretastes of what it may be like to be in that perfect will of God. But it sort of occurs within the context of time, but it is in eternity that it is brought to its fruition, its completion. And that's where we get to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn within a large family, Christ is the first of all of us. The head of the church. The author of our salvation. And those whom he predestined. Those who he determined. To conform to the image of his son. Whom he saw and knew. To be people of faith. He also called. Well where's the chicken and the egg? You don't have that in eternity issues. God sees you acting in faith, knows you to be a person of faith, knows you to be a, a daughter of the king, so to speak. Therefore, determines that you're going to be conformed to the image of his son and is going to enable the whole process to begin with. Temporality? That's a problem for us. Chicken-egg issues, not to God. So why introduce the whole concept? The concept of to show that God is present and to say in the same paragraph that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. That is absolutely true because God determined that you're going to be conformed to the image of his son because God knows you. And God has known you from eternity. And God is going to conform you to the image of his son and is enabling it to begin with. So regardless of what you see going around you or what you're going through yourself, you know the end point, the end destination, because you're destined to be there. Which you is, can have confidence in God and which be is content the, in your situation. As which problems. is the root of perseverance. Now, I don't accept the Calvinistic interpretation thereof of you know once saved, always saved. I accept 
the concept of those who 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 are living in this state and whom God knows to persevere, persevere. Those whom God knows to not persevere, don't. That's the ones I'm curious about. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's the majority. So in other words, predestination is rooted. Predestination. Now, here, let me give you the let me give you the contrast first. In Calvinism, predestination, which I'm going to symbolize with P, under Calvin, predestination is rooted in the sovereignty of God, God's sovereignty, God's decision. I choose you and you and you, but not you and you and you. All right? Any, many, miny, mo. Uh-uh. That's the Calvinist interpretation. I don't see that here. The more common interpretation, what we now know as the Arminian Wesley interpretation, it's also common amongst many other Christian groups, it's also the Thomistic interpretation, is that predestination is rooted in God's foreknowledge of you, in all that you and I are. And that's rooted right here. So, so this, uh, this wasn't Calvin's time, this was Paul's time. Yeah, exactly. Who, who was talking to him about predestination? Well, he, you know, the, 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 well, predestination was a Jewish concept. The idea they had. I'm a son of Abraham. Uh -huh. I'm, a, well, I'm rightfully, saved. Rightfully so, though. I mean, in that group, that was the they, way it was. They're God's it chosen was, people, God's elect. God's elect or God's chosen people, God whom, those whom God has called. And Paul <clears> talks about. That. Maybe that's why he's introducing it here, because later on he does talk about that well, and contrasts those that were of the bloodline and those who are not. But see, the problem was, and this is why he comes up with it in part, remember, he's writing here to Jewish Christians, yeah, he's screwing the Jewish Christians who, who are saying, we're Abraham's children, we're the elect. Now we're going to let you nasty, dirty, stinking Gentiles in, but you got to become Jews to get in fully. We'll let you in the door. You can sit in the back. You can't eat at the lunch counter. You got to eat it outside. But you can come in, and then we're going to snip on you and change you and make you into good Jews. We are the elect, and you can become a member of the elect now. Hey, that's the good news here. You can become a member of the elect through Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's the good news. We're no longer going to be a private club, but we are the ones who have the inside track on what it means to be truly a child of God. And this is what it is. We run the membership committee. Exactly. And here Paul is saying, no, no. Membership in this family of God the membership in this group for which Jesus is the firstborn of a large family comes through God's foreknowledge of those who will love him, who, who are called according to his purpose, those who exercise faith in God. That foreknowledge is what determines those who will be conformed and become Christians, those who are predestined to be enabled, called those, uh, those who will be justified as a result of that. Those who will be glorified, made perfect because of that. 
Paul's telling the God's making those decisions. You're not. Yes, God's in charge in of this, yes. not the Jewish Christian leadership in Jerusalem. Precisely right. Now, Calvin comes along. Well, excuse, let me let me back up. Augustine comes along in the 300s AD. Bishop of Hippo comes along and reads this, and his interpretation is, well, God chooses. Calvin comes along later in the Reformation. Martin Luther before him, but Calvin really does it, and says it's not just God chooses you and you and you, and the rest of you go to hell because I don't choose you, but I choose you and you and you, and you and you and you go to hell. Double-barreled predestination, superlapsarianism, as as it's called. Now, Calvin didn't actually articulate that, but his immediate followers did. He left the door open. Now, the interpretation, though, is rooted in not foreknowledge, but rather their reading of proegno, not as knowing ahead of time, but choosing ahead of time. And we see that in a couple of the translations here. Those translations are governed by that Calvinist bent. The literal Greek, though, in the non-idiomatic formation of the word, is to know, knowledge of, ahead of time. Knowing what you're going to do, what you've done. In God's context, what you've done. Because it's done, completed, over with. And if God knows you to be a daughter of God, and if God therefore determines you to be conformed to the image of Christ, who is the head of your family now, that means he's going to call you and enable this transformation. And that means that he's going to justify you, forgive you of all your sins, And that means that God is then going to transform you and complete the transformation in glorification. It's like he's working backwards. Yes. In a way. That's almost, in fact, that really is what God does. God's kind of like Merlin living backwards, going from the completed back to the beginning to enable it. To enable it. So this concept of predestination is not one that we we should ever be afraid of. In fact, it's, it's fully biblical and is rooted in the very problem that we struggle with in time. God is not limited by time. We see the flow of time and we don't know what's going to happen next. God does. We do not understand where... Good is going to come in every circumstance, Lee. But God does. That's where hope and faith and endurance are called for. And trust. Trust. And then God knows the completion of the process. Well, what about those who don't persevere to the end, Lee's question? I don't know. Just hang in there, huh? (laughs) Yeah, in a literally, sense. man. Right. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think, to be frank, that the church is more bait and switch than anything. <laughs> they hold up Jesus and his simple beliefs and so forth, beautiful beliefs, and then when the people come in, they said, "Wait a minute, keep this in mind. We're going to have Paul here. He's a cold, legalistic." Uh, dogma type person and he'll take over from here but just keep your eye on this sure this is what brought you in but this is really the way it is 
And you see, I don't see Paul as a cold, legalistic, or dogma person. I see him as a fallen human being who is struggling against the sins in his life and his own sense of inadequacy, who has heard the call of God to proclaim the gospel to a whole lot of people who have been excluded from the family of God, who is calling, who is proclaiming the gospel apart from legalism at all, but instead proclaiming it uh, salvation by grace through faith, not through legalistic obedience to works or to what the Torah or Moses would have you do. Instead, it's it's a faithful obedience to Christ Jesus and what He calls us to do and who He calls us to be. When we started saying that, I, I thought for sure you were going to end not with comparing it to Paul, but rather comparing it to James or comparing it to the Jews of Paul's time because they were saying, oh yes, okay, here's Jesus up here. And then once they came in the door, he said, okay, now you have to follow the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs. And Paul, in his all of his messages, all of his writings, seems to be coming against that, that yeah, you are called, but there is none of, you don't have to do all those things. In Christ, you're actually set free. You don't have to become a Jew to be a Christian. You are free to be a Gentile and a Christian. You know? and, and I thought, just one more point, that with what you're saying, if it wasn't going to be compared to James and those Jews, I was thinking the other point that you could have followed through was, here's all the churches of today so often hold Jesus up there. But then when you walk through the door, so many churches lay on the legalism whatever they've decided to pick out and make their particular denomination or particular group within a denomination, which again is no different than what Paul was fighting against, whether it was the Jews here or the legalists. Exactly. Well, yeah, the history is real strong, but the cold legalistic part that I, 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 I can see where you're getting at. Where, because here's the cold legalistic part. If Jesus Christ died for you, you're free. God's grace is there. Here's the legalistic part. Yes. These conditions, two conditions are met. Well, the, the conditions are that you believe in God and you follow Him blindly, like we know all humans do, in faith because He knows what's best for you. That is pretty friggin' cold compared to this guy that died for you, was resurrected, was raised up. What was and Jesus? not only that, but the legal part is you don't do it. You're not in, son. Not only you're not in, you want to be a little Calvinistic about this, you're in hell. And not, not only that, wait a minute, not only that, but you've got Satan that she's talking about, and we all believe in his evil personification of evil, a way of talking about it. He, God, you let him in this world, and you're telling me that Jesus was saved for us? That's pretty darn cold. I see what Lee's saying. Here's this nice, neat thing, and you learn all the stuff in early church, and then you get into Paul, and you go, holy crap. That's what, <laughs> oh my God, that's what it means, you know? Well, let me get crucified, let me be killed like Paul, you know? Let me suffer so I can be glorified. That's what I think Lee's saying. That's that's not real. Doesn't have a real good warm feeling to it. You know what I mean? When you when you're honest about it, when you realize what the struggle really means. Well, the, I, I the redirect to, to legalism, I, I totally agree. And so, and I've personally experienced that in my own life. You know, in, in some strict denominations that sure. tend to be very legalistic in terms of what they think is required to be a member and to deserve the label of a Christian. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that is fair to say that's a bait and switch because that's not the gospel. So here's the gospel that gets you in, but now you're in. It's their version of cutting right. it and the kosher laws. 
or yeah. or to you know to illustrate it in Paul's days, they pulled out the scissors. Right. Okay, gentlemen, snip. you're in the church now. Snip, snip, snip. But but the message of you need to love God and you need to have faith and you need to trust. The object of all those verbs is Jesus Christ Himself. I don't view that as being cold because right. it's all pointing back to. God's no longer out there. God came and struck a tent in human flesh and walked this earth. And you saw him, because at least in this yeah. time frame, many of them saw yeah, exactly. That's warm. That's not cold. That's not some. Well, the cold part is for all those. The cold part is for all the people that didn't see him. And it's not a whole lot of difference in if you don't believe in him, if you don't have perfect blind faith, if you don't love this Where person, you, you can't see. I don't see that anymore. It is blind faith. It is blind faith. Where I'm getting that because none of us at this table can show us God right now. We can show us people that we can have God with nice words. We can say, oh yeah, well, Greg is in God. I'm in God. We're all saints here. We can all say that. But, but that's what I'm saying. Blind? No, no, no. I not disagree just with you because I had a personal encounter with <laughs> Huh? Okay, but can and we all probably well many of us did. What I'm saying is I can't show that yeah, personal. Can't you can't objectively prove it. No, well not on objectively prove. You, you, you can live it. You, you can, can talk about it, but you cannot. You can't take a person deny story. another person's faith experience. No, no, right. nobody is saying you can, but you cannot deny another person's faith experience either. No, that's right. So if you can't More deny it, then theirs experience. is all personal to them. They haven't had the experience that I had yet. But right. You don't know that. You can't know that. We can't know. That's what Lee's talking about. You can't know that somebody else hasn't had your your faith experience. Right. You can't know There's a question. Um, as, uh, well, um, I could ask you to prove to me that you exist. Now, can you do it? I could give you the Greek way and say, you know, the shadow is more real than the existence, right? <laughs> now, prove me you, you exist. Right. Exactly. One of the great debates that we had when I was in college was, how do I know that I am real or am I just a figment of somebody else's exactly. imagination? Or, prove to me that Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States in 18... Yeah. Well, actually, there was a new picture that came out, another one. That's well, you can show me here. photographs of it, you can show me documentary evidence of it, you can show me signatures of his and things that he wrote, right. the envelope in which he wrote the Gettysburg Address, all that stuff. You can show me all that stuff, but the instant that he passed into history, died, and was gone, there is a degree to which my ability to be certain that that wasn't fabricated, made up, there's, there's a degree of uncertainty that begins at that point. It could be that Abraham Lincoln was somebody who had been... I could have a conspiracy theory, like those weird nutses who say we never went to the moon, and say that it was all made up. The photographs have been faked. They really weren't Abraham Lincoln. They were somebody else by the same name, hence the Shakespeare joke. Uh, the, 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 all of that wasn't true and wasn't real. I mean, You're comparing that to faith? I'm saying that historical certainty... I'm waiting for that. that I'm waiting for where he's going with this. That historical certainty, the instant something is passed, is you are incapable of actually establish, establishing it 
with certainty. If you're not an eyewitness. If you are not an eyewitness, if you were not there, if you did not know or experience it yourself, you cannot have historical certainty. Same thing exists for Jesus. We have texts, we have stories about him, we've got things that people said he did and said. We got we got writings that are either citations of what he did or what people said that he did. But it is impossible to establish an historical certainty because we are no longer there ourselves, and we weren't. I don't know any two thousand years. But you were talking about proving to you know that you exist. Well, obviously, if to prove to anybody that I exist, if they want to put hundred bucks on it, I could. Anybody could put somebody else through the wall. There's some force there that just hit me, you know. So there's a relationship. That's simply a relationship that you're having with another set of relationships. Prove that there's something behind the set of relationships. But that's a philosophical argument. The historical certainty argument is strong. Yeah, but that that would be for the existence right now, and that could be turned on you and say, "Well, prove to me that you." Now I want to go back to the issue of Paul versus Jesus. Paul versus Jesus. What was what was Jesus's what was Jesus's requirement? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How is that different from Paul? It's not. Which was a quote from the Old Testament. Which is Paul. Paul <laughs> quotes. Good point. It's Good one of all those. The time. It's one of those citations that Paul makes of Jesus that Jesus makes of Deuteronomy. It's one of those examples where Paul is quoting Jesus directly, who is also quoting the Old Testament. But he identifies that in one location as being the essence of what it means. To be a Christian, what it, the essence of what it means to love God and be called according to His purpose, and I would say that in that respect, especially, there is absolutely no difference between what Jesus calls us to do and be, and what Paul calls us to do and be. Now, Paul is articulating it within a Greco, uh, Greek language set of concepts but you can translate those back into Hebrew and you hear Jesus saying the same things talking about faith trust returning to your father I mean I can go through the parables and give you illustrations uh, of that so I don't see a disconnect between Jesus and Paul not at all the requirements that Paul makes? What requirement? Name one. Well, okay. Uh, Jesus didn't require baptism. Paul didn't require baptism. He required the state of existence within Christ Jesus, i.e. having Christ in you and you in Christ, and that is immersion into Jesus. But he didn't require physical external baptism. Jesus didn't say anything about original sin coming from Adam and Eve. But he talked about the sin nature and how sin corrupts us and how we are called yeah, to Paul actually. uses positives. He said, this is it. This is it. I mean, he he's got like 25 pounds of, of <laughs> Paul's writing that is required where uh, crisis was very simple. I don't think so, Lee. I think Jesus... Was everything he said was in the context of Judaism? Yes, that's true. And it all came with it. That's so he, 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 just as Paul is trying to kind of boil down or, or interpret.
interpret Jesus. Jesus was trying to interpret the Old Testament, but you can't cut him loose from that and say, this is all there was. Excellent. So you've got a, you've got a whole lot of lot of uh, so Jesus theology was, behind what Jesus. Was, Jesus wasn't foresighted enough to know this was going to Gentiles also? I don't think I that's don't think so. no. the well, issue. So I don't think that's the <laughs> issue. He, 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 uh, he, well, I think he absolutely was. There's evidence he, of that in the Old Testament he, he absolutely but was. You, you want to throw, want to throw reached, a big question mark in there? Yeah, it's really a big question yeah, mark in there because no, the Son of God wouldn't know what really what's going to go on. No, because Jesus talked about grafting in to the vine. Yeah. Okay, but and, and, then that would reduce what the He talked about the Gentiles coming back in. He talked about Gentiles coming in. He communicated with Gentiles. He healed Gentiles. He, he ate with Gentiles. He ate with Gentiles and sinners, tax collectors. Um, he established some very hard guidelines. If you hate not your father, your mother, your sister, and brother, and life itself, you can't be my disciple. Now that's awfully hard. Mm-hmm. Didn't it, wasn't it really love less? Of course. It, it's a relative. Messio means to prefer me over them. Right. But in our, in our the word hate, I think in our context. It's a bad translation. That, right? But my point so is. Love less, so that means you've got to love God even more than you love your wife. Then you love but that's my wife. point. That's a very hard yeah, road to hoe. There are other very hard roads to hoe in Jesus' articulation. It's not as simple as as sometimes he is pictured. Um, he is definitely seated within Judaism of his day. You can see it in what he says and how what he says in many places echoes the very best of Jewish thought that we know from Philo and several other writers of that were somewhat contemporary of Jesus, either before or after him. We can see where he reflects his day, because he's speaking to people of his day, then and there. The truth of its applicability for centuries is the amazing thing, and bespeaks of where God in Christ Jesus was aware of us. In a, in a very mysterious sense. The fact that it applies today to people who live in a culture and society in an era that is ap- unbelievably removed from where and when Jesus lived. But I don't see this disconnect between Paul and Jesus. I see Paul as the preeminent voice proclaiming Jesus outside of the Jewish circle. And the precise reason, you know, some there's a there was a question that was raised, uh, came up in the eighties: Is Paul or Jesus the founder of Christianity? Uh, Paul is probably the most responsible apostle. No, not probably. He was the most responsible apostle for for Christianity becoming something other than a denomination of Judaism. And had he not done it. God would either have used somebody else to do it, or Christianity would have vanished along with Sadduceeism and Essenism and Zealotism and several of the other movements and denominations of Judaism when Judaism had to become one denomination, i.e. Pharisaic Judaism, after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. All the Messianic forms of Judaism that existed at that time were completely uh, wiped out or assumed within Phariseeism. Christianity, because it had a root outside of Judaism when the temple was destroyed, it survived. 
independent as an independent religion and survived principally, if not entirely, because of Paul. So in that sense, I would say, yeah, Paul is the founder of Christianity within the Gentile world. But the founder of the faith is Jesus Christ. For he is the one in whom we have faith. I don't have faith in Paul. I have faith in Christ. I have faith in things that Paul said. I sometimes think Paul is wrong. And you're not wrong, by the way. Who never met Jesus has all this knowledge. This is the most marvelous part of this. He never met Jesus during Jesus' life on earth prior to the crucifixion and resurrection, but he had an encounter with Jesus. Uh, he was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. Um, he, cla- and he cla- you know, some people say, but that's a completely different event. He classes it as a within the sequence of resurrection appearances that begin with the one of those that occurred immediately after his resurrection, and those that occurred to all of the disciples and the brother of the Lord James, and what five hundred who were uh, some of them still alive in that day, and last of all, he says to me. So he classes his experience of meeting Jesus as being on par with, like, the resurrection appearances. With one exception would have to be it came after the ascension. But many of those post-resurrection appearances, you could argue, occurred after the ascension as well. So I would say, yeah, it's amazing that he knows as much as he does. Well, he knew a whole lot of the disciples. He, he, he knew companions of the disciples. But he also had, according to his own pro- proclamation, a direct um, tutoring under Jesus. <laughs> for three Jesus. years. Yeah. For three years. was taught by the Lord himself. However, we're going to understand that. Um, there, yeah. I think it's. I think that is amazing. And yet, even though he had that three years with Jesus, he didn't. Everything wasn't revealed to him because he didn't have knowledge of everything. It was clear in his writings because he thought Jesus was second coming back. And some things were revealed to him progressively over mm-hmm. time, and his theology evolved over time and grew in precision and complexity. Over time, he's a very dynamic character. When you read his first letter, First Thessalonians, and you read his last um, uncontested letter, Romans, you have a real period and structure of growth. If you go beyond the contested letters into the pastoral epistles, you see even more growth that reflects the imprisonment and that level of persecution. He's a lawyer. He's developing. <laughs> Actually, he was trained by one of the best Pharisee lawyers of his day, Gamaliel. <laughs> what can we say? Uh, he, is, he could be pedantic. Oh, he could be pedantic. I don't think, had I met, I mean, I'd love to meet and have dinner. You know, one of those people you like to meet and have dinner with. I'd love to meet and have dinner with Paul. But I don't want Paul as my pastor, I'm going to tell you right now. Because <laughs> he's going to tell me where the bear sits. And I may not want to hear it quite so bluntly as sometimes he could be in his writings. In person, he would sometimes not be. But in his writings, he could be almost brutally blunt. 
And I think what Lee is talking, I'm talking wait, about being wait, brutally wait, blunt. Wait, take your own responsibility. No. <laughs> Speaking for Lee. Speaking for Lee again. <laughs> Not that I would say this, but Lee would, well, Lee would say this. Lee would put it. What the, uh, the, are you, are you, uh, we love this. The, uh, yeah, the, the deal, uh, by Paul, maybe this is what we have been referring to a couple of us, is that you just called him blunt. You just said you wouldn't want your pastor, you wouldn't want him necessarily, I mean, to be your pastor. That would be tough, but hang on. If the churches, which Stan did refer to, are misinterpreting a lot of Paul. He's blunt, he's hard, he expects a lot of you anyway. He was a lawyer, he speaks like a lawyer, he writes like a lawyer. It's pretty pretty blunt out there, you know, do or die type of thing. That's what, I'm, that's what I think we're talking about. the context about. of when he was writing and to whom he was writing and why he was writing. And many of his letters were written within the context of conflict within those churches. So you got to do that too. Right, but we don't. how many times from the pulpit have we heard that other than you and some of our people? How many times are you hearing that in other churches? That might be what we're referring to well, as a bait and switch. I would say that I would agree with that I too. Know. People have taken Paul and used him to beat on women and also... Back during the Revo- during the Civil War, Paul was quoted to justify slavery. I find that a, a, a absolutely atrocious, but he was quoted to justify slavery, even though Paul was absolutely against yeah, he it. He would find it atrocious. And and I, yeah, you can take and use and abuse Paul in many ways. And Paul was a creature of his time and era as well, and we have to understand that. I would want Paul, I would love to have Paul as a spiritual advisor. He is, because he's the author of Scripture and I read Scripture. But, because I would need that bluntness. But I don't want it all the time. (laughs) Well, you said he was a character of his time. He's a character of today because the church has cemented everything he said into the church. He's, he has had such a massive influence on the development of Christianity. Take a look at the New Testament. He wrote two thirds of it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that Paul's theologies and what Paul was saying is cemented into the churches that we have today. Because just like anybody who distorts one verse of scripture, I think today's churches, the vast majority of them, have distorted, I'm sure every single one of them, in, in one part or another, has distorted something. Yep. And that's why... I think to make a theology or to make a decision or blind faith on what you hear in, from the church without going back and looking at it in the scripture and reading it and understanding it. I mean, Jesus said most people, who said most people deny Jesus and they haven't even met him. Dr. Scott may have said that. You know, they deny Jesus because of the people who are supposed to be Christians that are saying you have to be like me because I follow Christ. So they're denying the person and all of whatever baggage they're bringing. And they never even saw or met or heard Jesus because that's in, in the scriptures. And Gandhi said that he would be a Christian if you could ever meet one. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that he didn't take a look at Paul and he didn't take a look at people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer or others, people who existed in his day, who truly are Christians. I mean, he didn't, you know, if he lived in a later period, he didn't take a look at, at um, uh, Mother Teresa of his own country, who, with all of her faults, and boy, she had a whole bunch based on what we now know from what she wrote. Mm-hmm. She had a whole lot of faults. 
But she sure loved Jesus. And she sure tried to do what she, what she believed Jesus called her to do. And that was to do good. To help people. And be truly the hands and feet of Christ. And I, you know, I see that throughout Paul. I really do. It's one of the reasons why I love him. I love his writings. I struggle with them at times. There are some things that I think Paul was maybe a little off point on. But at the, but by and large, I love his theological approach. Do you think one of the, the big contributing factors to the problems people have, like we were saying, the legalism that's out there is, I think as humans, we, we want to belong to a group. We want everybody to be moving in the same direction. And I don't think Jesus ever said in Christianity that we all had to act as the same in the same way. It's like Mother Teresa, you know, she felt it in her heart to be good and to do good. And maybe people thought, well, if you're not like her, you're, you're not really following Christ because you're not doing what she's doing. And so many churches want us to all respond to Christ in the same way. The response. There, exactly. Because Jesus did call us all to be one as he and the Father are one. But what does that mean? Is there only one way to do it? Exactly. Dude, I don't believe so. But there's a criticism, though. If you're not doing what you're doing, like if you're in a church that does a lot of goods for the community, yep. and you have somebody who comes in who's not as comfortable doing that because they like to minister in a different way, that person might not feel like they fit well, and they may be cast out and looked on by the other people as, wow, there's something wrong with that person because they don't have that same desire that I have yeah, that to happens. do good to the community. That happens. They may not be in that same place that these other people are in at that point. I mean, there's a lot of things yeah. that can be going on. Uh, I believe that the church has perverted Paul over the centuries. Deeply perverted Paul. Um, and he gets blamed for a lot of things that he did not say or do, too. But um, um, in the end, I think it's, it, it behooves us. That's why we do it, why we read Scripture, to go back and read and reread and struggle with it. Paul, that wasn't your best moment of argument there. The <laughs> argument in 1 Corinthians where he says that women should keep their heads covered because of the angels, that's ridiculous, Paul. And he spends six or seven verses rambling around for a while and then finally says, hey, we don't have any rules on that. If you're going to argue about it, don't. Well, you should have said that to begin with and cut out all the junk in between. So Paul had his moments too. But the nice thing about Paul is he often told us, look, this is my opinion. You know, who didn't have his moments? You can go back to Paul and anyone other, all the other writers and see problems, but can you go back to one thing that Jesus said and say, wow, there's something wrong with that? I may not understand something that Jesus yeah, said, exactly. but I have not been able to say there's something wrong with it. Or where he contradicts himself? No. Not at all. We really got off mark, and we only got two verses. Well, we got three. three. Well, we talked about predestination. Uh, we did talk about predestination at length. Um, I think to, to sum it up, yeah, to sum it up is um, if you approach the, th the concepts of predestination with a two dogmatic, two dogmatic structure in either direction, you're going to end up not understanding what Paul is saying. And you have to understand it within the context of chapter 8. With the verses that go before it and the verses after it. We haven't even touched on the verses that follow it. But 
I think that by put, linking it to the verses that precede it, I think we've done a good job of, of finishing Paul's thought there. So next time we're going to pick it up with verse with the next with the next verse, verse thirty one. And you know, I'll probably jump on and read it straight through and then move on in because I want to give it its context. But you know, I can't do anything about it. Are we going to encounter predestination of the topic again later, or is that it? In the moments. Because so. I have a request for a topic, not for tonight. Yes, okay. But there's a term, prevenient grace, that at yes. many times is contrasted with predestination. Correct. As a Calvinist ill. And I would appreciate maybe taking a little bit of time and just describing the Arminian you know, concepts. I've preached on that here. Are you <laughs> there's right. a book. We'll do that. On, on <laughs> I'll be happy, be good. Like I'll be happy to discuss prevenient his grace. grace if you it's in the book. It's the grace. It's in the book. half that book. No, I'm sorry. It's a section of one of my favorite The cat. Think of the cat. Jumping through the door and you'll have Brittany's grace. Oh, Brittany's grace. The concept of God's grace that goes before anything that we do. And actually, it's that concept within the sequence of call. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's that call. It's the Arminian take on the concept of predestination and the called characteristic thereof. That God is always moving ahead of us, wooing us, calling us, enabling us, but not compelling us. Come on, he said not tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad. Hey, I did an awful That was really fast, Pete. Come on, that's a record. <laughs>